Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's on page 1080 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along in one of those. But we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And it should be on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. The day of the Lord. There's perhaps no other event in Scripture that ought to strike more fear into the heart of man, and yet perhaps no other event that is so neglected as this. And again and again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is a day of judgment and reckoning for the entire world. We just heard uh, from Peter as he speaks of this day, there are Countless passages in the Old Testament that also speak to the day of the Lord. I will just cite two very short ones. Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. Isaiah 13.6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord, as you read it about in Scripture, is a, a fearful day. It is a day of dread. It is a day that is meant to uh, strike fear and terrify the wicked and unbelieving who are resisting the Lord. And, and even the Christian uh, should have a healthy, reverent fear of that day. Not out of a fear of punishment or to think that we might end up on the wrong side of Christ's judgment, but rather as you read the description 
of this total destruction and judgment, it is a day that is sobering uh, and ought to bring about a, a serious just contemplation and effect within us. Last week, we saw in chapter two, the danger that this early church was facing as a result of the false teachers that were in their midst that had infiltrated this young church. And Peter uh, was writing them to try to combat the effects of these false teachers with their heresies, with their greed, their lust and sexual immorality, and all manners of ungodliness that characterized these people who were seeking to influence the church. So the apostle sees this danger. He sees this church from a distance. He hears what they're being taught. He sees what they're being, uh, they're trying to influence them to do and tempt them away into sin. And so he writes to them to exhort them to stay faithful, keep walking with the Lord. And he does so in particular by pointing them to this day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thrust of his message to them, and then the thrust of his message to us today, the main idea of this text is this. The Lord Jesus will come again. He will come again to destroy the ungodly in fiery judgment and bring his people safely into the new heavens and earth. So repent now and live a life of holiness as you await the day of the Lord. That's the sobering message that he was writing to these Christians who were in danger of being led astray and into worldliness. And it's the same message I think we're in desperate need of hearing and grasping today. This is a serious matter. These are serious truths that we claim to believe. And that's really the first thing that we see in these initial verses as we dive into the first couple of verses. We see the need to remember the day of the Lord. So Peter begins this section with these words, with words of tenderness, really. He says, dear friends, or as some of your translations put it, and I'm more partial to, he says, beloved. And if saying it once wasn't enough, he repeats it again in verse 8, beloved. And you instantly just feel the affection that Peter has for these brothers and sisters in Christ, these people he knows these people he cares about, these people who are dear to him, they are beloved by God and they are beloved by Peter himself. So as we come to this often heavy topic of the day of the Lord, this judgment that is coming, we need to see that when Peter speaks of it, he speaks of it first and foremost from the place of love. He, he speaks to it from a place of care. This isn't a uh, kind of hateful protester or street preacher holding up a sign that says, you're all going to burn, right? That's not, that's not Peter's approach. Peter is coming from a place of love. These truths flow from that. But a heart of love will speak the truth, right? A heart of love will speak the hard things that people need to hear. So speaking from this place of love, uh, where does he go? What does he tell them? What is he going to uh, bring to their minds? Well, he reminds them of the truths that they already know, but they're also truths that they're in danger of forgetting or at the very least neglecting. So starting with the second part of verse one, he says, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. So this isn't brand new information that Peter is pointing them to. Rather, 
He's reminding them of the truths that they already should know, that they already should have grasped as they have seen in the teachings from the prophets, as they have already heard from the apostles, and even from the teachings of the Lord Jesus himself. And essentially, we have the very same thing, right? In our Old and New Testament, we have the words of the prophets, we have the apostles, we have the words of the Lord Jesus, and Peter is going to remind them of these truths that they so desperately need to hear. Now, what is his aim, though, in all this reminding and recalling and what he's bringing back to mind with these truths? Well, he tells us, once again, he said, to stir up your sincere understanding. He wants to stir them up in their understanding, their thinking. Literally, the translation would just be mind. He wants to stir up a sincere and devoted, pure mind. That is what he is after. He wants to arouse, awaken something within them. And at its most basic level, he wants them to know the truth that they have been taught and not be fooled by false teaching, right? He doesn't want them to fall for these heresies, for these other influences that are taking them away from the words of Christ. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to hold orthodox teaching as they've been taught, as the Bible uh, would reveal to them. But it's also so much more than just ascribing to the right doctrine. It's, it's so much more than that. He wants to stir them up and awaken them once again to the realities of these truths. He wants them to not just know they are true, but he wants them to feel the weightiness of them in their lives. He wants their whole outlook, their whole perspective to be shaped by these incredible truths, by, especially by this incredible day that is coming. And he wants them to live in light of that day. And here's the problem. We are ever prone to letting the most important truths in the world become the most insignificant in our thinking on a daily basis, right? I'll say that again. We are ever prone to letting the most important truths in the world become the most insignificant in our daily thinking throughout our days. Our vision gets clouded. We become concerned with all the wrong things. We get uh, the things that should concern us just completely slip from our minds as we go about our days. And that is why our minds must continually be stirred up, continually reawakened to these glorious truths that God has spoken in his word. And it's really the same thing the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 12, 2, that he is after there, where he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind the renewing of your mind. It's not just a once and done thing. You need to be transformed by the ongoing renewal of your mind. And that's how transformation comes in the life of the believer. It's how, as we are continuously renewed, our minds are continuously renewed according to the pattern of thinking in God's word. And it returns to a sincere understanding, a spiritual frame of thinking. And without this renewal through God's word and by his spirit, we are left weak and vulnerable to the very people that Peter is warning uh, these Christians about, the false teachers, other influences, those who would tempt us away from Christ. And Peter already warned back in chapter one that it's possible for the Christian to be useless, these were his words, useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's a terrifying thought to be useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ for the Christian. But these Christians are also in an even greater danger here, the danger of succumbing to these false teachers in their midst and losing that knowledge altogether. So that's where Peter turns now in these next couple verses. So in verses three and four, we see the scoffers who deny the day of the Lord. Scoffers who deny it. So Peter addresses them head on. So this is verse three. He says, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? So Peter starts out, by, he warns them, be, be aware, watch out for this. There will be those in your midst, even in the church, who deny this fundamental basic teaching of the gospel that Christ is going to return in judgment and also in glory and bring his people into the new heavens and earth. And sadly, there are many theologians and churches, pastors, whole denominations who would do the very same thing today, who do the same thing today, who deny any kind of thought of judgment, deny any kind of thought of the Lord Jesus truly coming back in power. So this isn't a far off uh, influence or heresy that we don't need to be concerned about, but we hear this all the time. In the culture we live in, that's, that's the air we breathe. But notice how Peter describes those that he is speaking of that reject this coming of Christ. First, he says, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. So scoffers scoffing. He, he repeats it twice. And by, by the repetition, he's really laying the emphasis here that this is kind of their main attack. This is their, their whole approach as they think about this idea of the Lord's return. They scoff at it. Though You could see in the text, they said, where is his, and then parentheses, coming that he promised. Where is this coming? Yeah, we, we don't see it, right? And so that's the essence of it. They mock it. They ridicule it. They laugh at it. And scoffing is the normal, perhaps even instinctual response of the ungodly when dealing with godly matters. Holy things handled in the hands of the unholy simply comes to ridicule. Do not cast your pearls before swine. They do not and cannot value the truths as they ought. And so what do they do? They treat it with ridicule. Unless the Lord opens their eyes to see the glory and to see the beauty and to see the truth, they ridicule, they scoff at it. You can read the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament. You can read the lives of the apostles in the New, and you find the same thing repeatedly. The truth is either believed and embraced and responded to with wonder and praise for the Lord, or it's scoffed at. It's mocked. It's ignored. It's ridiculed. It's the pattern you see again and again. You can think of the most sacred moment in history, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself, suffering on the cross for the sins of humanity, dying a slow, painful death as he bore the wrath of God for sins. And what is he met with for the, from the people that he is dying to save? Scoffing. Luke 23, 35. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if, he is God, if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
It's a joke to them. They laugh at it. They scorn it. They, it's, it's just ridicule. They mocked the Son of God on the cross. And if they scoffed at our Savior while he was on the cross, they will certainly scoff at us for celebrating that cross, right? If they scoffed at his first coming, it only makes sense that they're going to scoff at his second coming, at his return. But Peter then tells us what is really behind all this. He says, uh, in verse 3, he says, once again, following their own evil desires. They're following their own evil desires. So what's the real reason that they are denying the day of the Lord and mocking the very thought of it? Because that truth is not compatible with what they truly desire, with what they really want to do, with how they want to live their lives. He said their beliefs are simply following along behind what their evil desires uh, want to be fulfilled, what they're wanting to do, what they're wanting fulfilled. In other words, these are not free unbiased, kind of just rational minds that are searching for the truth and and following wherever their unbiased reason takes them. That's not what's happening. Peter says, no, you you already see, in this case, they they could see what these men very clearly were like. You already see them in their greed. You already see them in their lust. You already see them in this lives of sexual immorality and all manners of ungodliness. It is the evil desires of these men that are controlling their minds. It, it, that's how it works. Their desires are in control. It's not their free thinking leading them anywhere. They are following where their desires are taking them. So their own evil, sinful desires have such a grip that they shape the very conclusions that they reach. They believe what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. And it's no different today, right? People believe what they want to believe so they can live however they want to live. But you can either submit your desires to God and be led by him, or you can submit yourself to your desires and be led by them. So you could track, that was kind of a weird way to put it. But you can either submit your desires to God and be led by him, or you submit to your desires and they are in control. They are leading where you go. They are ruling and dictating your life. Those are the only two options. And one leads to, one leads to freedom and joy, and the other to slavery. Now, in verse 4, we are given a little glimpse into their think, the thinking of these scoffers, these false teachers. It says, ever since uh, our an- verse 4, ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. So their basic argument is a simple one. It's just all things continue as they've been. There's never been this abrupt work of God doing any marvelous thing or changing things in the way that you are claiming. Look at history. Look at the world around you. Look at everything you know about life. Nothing like this is going to happen. You can go all the way back to our ancestors, which he's referencing the, the Jewish patriarchs. Go back even farther to creation. Things just continue kind of in this state of motion, the state of uh, this flow that isn't going to be broke up. That's not going to suddenly stop. And of course, you know, modern man has our own versions of that, right? Basic, same basic assertion. Things are going to continue like this in this process of change and evolution forever, and we're just going to keep going down this path. There's not going to be no, any sudden intervention from God, no divine judgment, nothing like that to come. How silly to think that. But it's these objections that Peter's going to turn to now, and as he responds to their initial claims, He'll also then expand into the fullness of what this day 
will really be, be like. So that brings us to the next kind of point or section where we see the certainty and the nature of the day of the Lord. So in verses five through six, he says that the scoffers who are saying these things, they deliberately overlook two vital pieces of information. There's two things that they totally overlook in their response to this. He says, first, they overlook the fact of creation itself. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago when the earth was brought about from water and through water. So it was by the word of God that all of this came into existence. It was by his, his word, him speaking, everything came to be. And, and, and he adds, from and through water, which is a reference to Genesis 1, 2. That's the first thing they overlook, creation. The second thing is the flood. He says, through these, that is by the word of God and, and water, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. But, but why does this matter? Why does this, what does it have to do with what they said, where he is going? Uh, you can maybe see some initial things in his response to things are not going to continue as they always have. But more than that, he's really laying the groundwork for everything that is going to follow in what he has to say. Because as we'll see, the day of the Lord is a day of worldwide judgment on the one hand and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth on the other. So Peter is essentially saying, God has already done this. He's already created a universe. He's already brought a worldwide judgment. Of course, he's going to do it again. He's going to bring a judgment once and for all that is greater than even what the flood was. And he's going to create a new heavens and earth that are far greater than anything we've seen yet. But he's already done it. It's already occurred. Of course, it can happen again. You're overlooking this basic fact of Scripture. Now, Peter has a lot to say about this coming day of the Lord uh, throughout this, this next chunk of verses. Uh, so I want to pull all these together under, and kind of summarize them under two basic questions. So the first one will be, uh, is what will the second coming of Christ, this day of the Lord, what will it be like? How does he describe it? And the second is, why isn't it still here? Right? It, it, all this talk also long ago, why hasn't it come yet? But first, what will the day of the Lord be like? Well, verse, sum, verse 7 summarizes what is taught about the day of the Lord all throughout Scripture. He says, the last, last part in particular, it'll be a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It is a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It is a day of reckoning and judgment upon all who refuse to worship the Lord as they ought, for all who uh, follow evil desires rather than follow the Lord, for all who reject the cross and the offer of free forgiveness and pardon. It's a day of destruction of the ungodly that is coming. Not only that, but it is a day of destruction for the entire world as we know it. Look at the language Peter uses throughout this text. He says in verse 7, uh, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire. Verse 10, the heavens will pass away. The elements will burn and be dissolved. Verse 12, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. It's, it's destruction of the world as we know it. And this future judgment resembles the two probably greatest pictures of judgment in the Old Testament. You see, we see resemblances to the flood, which has already been mentioned, and also uh, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
which Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 6, he said they are an example of what is coming to the ungodly. So these, these two judgments are already a picture of what is to come when the day of the Lord comes. The scope of it will be worldwide, like in the flood. There will be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to get away from the wrath of the Lamb. It is coming. But instead of water, this judgment will come by fire, like that of Sodom. It's hard to imagine even what this day will truly be like and what it will entail. Far worse, what it will be like to experience it. In our modern age, we get a, a very small glimpse of what this kind of this scale of destruction uh, is like when we, when we see things like the atomic bomb or the destruction that nuclear weapons are capable of in a moment uh, where, where things that seem so permanent and so fixed are just utterly destroyed and dissolve and melt uh, and are just consumed in a moment. But even that is so small compared to what Peter is saying in this passage. He sees all of creation from top to bottom being consumed with fire and dissolving. So you lift up your eyes to the heavens, fire. You look around to the earth, there is fire. Everything is being consumed in judgment. Look to the elements or the heavenly bodies as the ESV translates it, which I think is what Peter's getting at and is a reference to stars. You can study that more on your own. It's a reference to Isaiah 13. But all of these things that seem so fixed, so permanent, dissolve like they are nothing under the judgment of God. So everywhere you look, destruction, desolation, fire, dissolving of all things, all these things that seem so fixed and permanent are gone. That's the first thing we see. We also see in verse 10 something else about this day, that it'll come suddenly and unexpected. He writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And you might recognize that language from what Pastor Drew read earlier in our service from Matthew 24, where Jesus said, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So like a thief who comes in the night and does what he does by surprise when you are least expecting it, so too will Christ, with no ill sense of that illustration, he will come when the world is most asleep and least expecting his return. Verse 10 also mentions that this will come with a loud noise or a roar, your translation might say, that'll accompany this coming judgment. And this is really uh, a fascinating phrase in the original language. It's the only place it's used in the Bible, but from texts outside of Scripture, we get an, a, a better idea kind of what it was, the certain bent that was meant by this loud noise. One scholar wrote this, he said of this phrase, he said, it is applied to many sounds of terror to the hurtling of weapons as they fly through the air, to the sound of a lash as it is brought down for the blow, to the rushing of waters, to the hissing of serpents. He has chosen it as if he would unite, by it he would unite many horrors in one. So in other words, it, it is a terrifying sound that you hear when it is too late to do anything about it. It's like an arrow whizzing through the air that you hear for a quick moment just before it hits. It's like the hissing of a serpent right before it strikes, and there's no way you can get out of the way or do anything 
about it. You recognize it instantly. And as time slows down in that moment, you realize there's nothing you can do about it. It's too late. So that's why the warning again and again and again throughout Scripture is, be ready. Don't be caught off guard. This day is coming. Don't be surprised by the sound when it comes. Make friends with the Lord now so he will not be your enemy when he comes then. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. Destruction is coming. But all this has a purpose. It's not destruction for destruction's sake. So the first purpose we see briefly is in verse 10 where he says, the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Things will be disclosed. In in other words, everything will be revealed and exposed and shown to be what it really was. The judgment of God exposes all the evils done in the world. All will see that he is just and that he is right in in the ways that he judges the evils that were done. All things will be disclosed. All things will be shown to how they really are. And God will be shown just in his judgment of all things and all people. But in verse 13, we see a greater purpose still, a hopeful purpose. He says, but based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So that is where all of this is headed. The day of the Lord, it doesn't have destruction as its end goal. It's not destruction, once again, for destruction's sake. By no means, it is for the restoration of the world. It is to set things right once Again, Romans 8 talks about how all creation is groaning. Creation itself is groaning. Not just humanity, but creation is groaning. Every part has felt the effects of the sinfulness of humanity. We have defiled the earth with the presence of sin, and we've brought unknown troubles throughout all of creation. Things are not how they ought to be. So God is going to burn up and dissolve every trace of sin, every ounce of uh, evil and pollution that sin has brought into our world so that the original intention of life and flourishing and beauty and righteousness will be present as they ought. And as an example of this, uh, there's a nature center next to our house, uh, and they do these controlled I think they call them prescribed burns. And it's a crazy sight when you, when you see it. If you're driving by, you think something's terribly wrong. Uh, but they, they, they kind of go through their fields. And we can, the first time we saw it is from our driveway, just looking across. And you see these huge flames. They are 8, 10 feet high. These flames just going throughout this field in this very controlled, prescribed manner. They burn the entire field. Everything in that field is burned up in the flames as they move through. But they have a very specific purpose in in doing this. They are burning away all the invasive plants, all the weeds that do not belong, all the the harm that comes through these plants and how they harm the ecosystem and how certain things flourish or don't flourish as a result. And and as they burn them away, these invasive plants have shallow roots, so they are removed uh, for all, at least until weeds come back, the seeds fall in, in this example. But they, they burn away, and what happens is, is those native plants are able to thrive. They have deeper root systems. They belong in that field, and so they thrive. The next season, it looks healthier and healthier, and they do this on an ongoing manner to keep making it healthier and healthier as a field. But God will do the same thing once and for all across all of creation. The fire of judgment serves to purify the earth and remove 
every ounce of the pollution and harm that sin has brought into God's good creation so that it might be restored to the paradise it was meant to be and that even something might be, be greater than the original creation, that it might become the very dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. So it's for a world without sin. It's a judgment to create a world without evils, a world that will one day be filled with the presence of God throughout. That is where this is headed. So the second question, where is it, right? Well, why hasn't it come yet? They, they were asking this question 30 years after perhaps the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. We're asking the same question 2,000 years later. Why hasn't he come? Where is his coming? But thankfully, Peter answers that question for us in these verses. And he does so by pointing us to the very character and the nature of God himself. So first in verse 8, he says this. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. So his, his first point is this. He says, essentially, you know, God exists outside of time or at least outside of our understanding and experience of time at the very least. So his perspective is completely different than us. He doesn't operate on our sort of frantic, hurried, uh, whatever you might say, approach to time. He is sovereign over by it. He is not affected in it by it the same way that we are. It's not that he's delaying or holding out on you. It's not that he's promised you something that he's not coming uh, through on. It's simply that your view of time is too small. Your understanding of God's purposes is too small. And and the scriptures, they, they speak of the return of Christ with this kind of perfect tension that perhaps you have felt. Uh, as you as you read through the different things that Scripture has to say about this day. So on the one day, what we read a moment ago, or looked at a moment ago, was that we should live uh, with eager expectation for this day. We should live as if that it could arrive at any moment. It could be any moment, so be ready. Don't be caught off guard. Be prepared. But at the same time, as we wait on our eternal God to work according to His perfect plan, according to His own timing that Jesus said not even He knew, you can think about how that works. So we are told to be patient. So be ready, be ready. Don't be caught off guard, be ready, but be patient because you don't know when it's gonna come. Maybe it'll come in your lifetime, maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be 2,000 more years, maybe it'll be before I'm done speaking. So be ready, but also be patient. The second way that Peter answers the question as to why hasn't he come yet gives us a glimpse into the very heart and desires of God. So verse 9 tells us, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So why does he tarry? What, what is the reason for this, this, this seeming delay if this staggering, uh, crazy judgment is coming? Why isn't it here yet? Well, simply put, it's because he loves you and doesn't want you to experience such a thing. If you are outside of Christ, if you are not a, a follower of Jesus, he is waiting for you to repent. He loves sinners. That's what we see all throughout Scripture, as deserving as we are, as ungodly sinners. God loves us. 
God is gracious towards us. He still loves the ungodly. That's the very reason Christ Jesus came, was to save sinners. That's why he came first in that way to the cross, not for our destruction, but for our salvation. He takes no delight in the pain or the death of the wicked. Look at the cross. He would rather perish himself under divine judgment than have you bear that for yourself. His anger is just. His wrath is fierce. His judgments can't be scrutinized in any way, and it will come eventually. But he doesn't desire that for you or for anyone. He wants all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So don't mistake God's patient waiting for a sign that he's not coming. Don't don't presume upon his kindness and waiting for you to come and thinking that you just don't need to come. Don't, Don't scoff at it or mock or ridicule a coming like this. It is going to happen. So the only question that really matters is which side will you be on? Will you be with him or will you be against him? And that is why repentance and the offer of repentance is such a gift. We we view it sometimes as this negative thing, but it's such a gift that everyone, all all people, Peter says, have the opportunity to change sides. That's that's repentance. It's turning to Christ, leaving behind the world. I don't want to be on that side. I want to be with Jesus and going to Jesus instead to turn to him. And, and, And what do you receive? Complete pardon, complete forgiveness, the free gift of salvation and righteousness. What does it cost you? Nothing. He's earned it all. And with such an offer as this and such a future to come, there's only one choice that makes sense. And that's what God is waiting on, repentance. To turn to him in worship and submission, to trust in the Lord Jesus and receive this gift of salvation that he offers freely. To receive the promise to be with him in this new heavens and new earth that we've read about and seen. There's no greater offer. Let's quickly look at one last point for just a few moments. And that is the Christian life in light of the day of the Lord. The Christian life in light of the day of the Lord. Now, if you've truly grasped what Peter is saying here, you you honestly need very little by way of practical application. Uh, It's pretty simple. So in verse 11, he says, since these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Next week, when we look at the rest of the passage, we'll see a few more specifics. But for now, Peter assumes that you are able to make connections on your own, right? He says, once again, he says, it is clear. It's clear. It's obvious what sort of person you should be, what sort of life you should live in holy conduct and godliness. It's clear That yours should be a God-centered, God-exalting, God-honoring life. Godliness should characterize your life, a God-centeredness. It's clear that there should be an absolute devotion to Jesus in every area of your life. It's clear that the most important thing you do each and every day ought to be to walk with Jesus to be near to him, to hear and listen to him in his word, to spend time with him in prayer, to follow him, to serve him. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however mundane, it is to do all things unto the Lord and live for him. 
It's clear that you should live a holy life, holy conduct. You should live a holy life in the midst of an unholy world. And despite everything the world does to try to convince you otherwise, holiness is always the path to happiness. It's always the path to happiness, both now and in the future. And what sort of love for the lost ought to characterize our lives as we think of such a future judgment to come and those who we love that are outside of Christ? What sort of love should we have, the same longing that God has that all might repent? And and what does that look like for us to engage in that same work and eagerly urge all to turn to the Lord? The day of the Lord will come. The new heavens and the new earth will arrive. All things will be made right. All things will be restored. All things will be gladness and rejoicing for God's people. As we read earlier, there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more struggle. We'll be reunited with those we love that have already left this decaying, uh, broken world. And in that place, we are told there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is the future that awaits all who want to be there, all who turn to the Lord Jesus now and embrace him. But the greatest part of this new heavens and new earth is that we will dwell in the very presence of God and behold his face. It's an incredible thought to behold his face. Revelation 21.3 says, behold The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the longing of the Christian heart. And to that end, we pray continuously, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the hope we have because of you. We know that apart from you, all would be lost. We would be lost. We would be destined for judgment because we have sins. All of us, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all have gone our own way. We all have uh, couldn't care, have cared less about you and lived for our own names, following our own evil desires. But we are thankful that you stepped into human history, that you bore our punishment on the cross and offered us free pardon and forgiveness and eternal life as a result. So Lord, we come to you now once again, embracing you as our Savior, once again rejoicing in this life, this gift, and looking forward to the day that we will behold you face to face and worship in your holy presence. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment of silence now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. So use this time to silently pray for a moment.